If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Well, welcome back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We're so excited. We have an awesome, awesome uh, episode for you guys today. Thank you for listening and subscribing and leaving comments and ratings because we really, really appreciate that. Uh, I am Keith Giles, and uh, I am joined by my co-hosts, uh, Matthew Stefano and Jamal Javanji. Guys, say hi and introduce yourself. Hi, this is Jamal Javanji, author of Free to Love, and it's really, really good to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour. And I'm uh, sorry, I just spilled water on myself. I'm Matthew DiStefano, and uh, I'm super excited about this episode that we have for you guys today. Um, I'm the author of uh, From the Blood of Abel and a couple other books, and um, recently accepted to have my blog hosted on Patheos, so I'm super excited about that, so I want to tell you guys about that. Congratulations. Um, Yeah, congrats. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks. I'm I'm excited, so that should be rolling out here shortly. Um, What's Patheos? We've got a... What's Patheos? It's um, it's an advertising site with some blogging. I'm just kidding. <laughs> not a lot of. <laughs> it's not. It's uh, Mark Driscoll's website, isn't it? Isn't that his thing? Oh, right. Yeah, I, that's right. Yes, yes. I've been brought on on staff there at Mars Hill. Yeah, or yeah. Does he have that anymore? No, he doesn't. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> that was a quite a professional intro. Um, our, we've got a really good ev- episode for you guys uh, today. But before we do that, as we always do, we've got to get into our Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Brad Jerzak, and I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi Brad. Brad. Brad Jerzak, it is so awesome to have you on the podcast. Uh, hey, the first thing I want to ask you is, uh, why are you considered a heretic? Can I answer your question with a question? Oh, I already did. <laughs> Just like Jesus. I was thinking about... Uh, well, wait a minute. What's a heretic, and who calls me that anyway? <laughs> and uh, I wanted to say about that. Uh, first of all, in the old days, a heretic just was a brother or sister in Christ that had made a mistake. Now the word's more like used as a, a witch or something. You're a false teacher. You're definitely not a Christian. You're going to hell and taking everyone there with you who agrees with you. So that it's sort of become this really hateful pejorative and uh, and so then the question is like, who would call me that? And um, I figured it out actually over 13 years now. Uh, we've got uh, some folks who are who are cessationists. They don't believe God speaks today except indirectly through the Bible. Uh, so they believe I'm a heretic because I do believe God speaks today. And I I've done some teaching and writing on the on the charismatic and contemplative traditions. Um, from a biblical point of view. So when when my book, Can You Hear Me, came out, they, that was the number one charge of why I was a heretic. Um, so that one's been floating around for about 13 years now. And, and then um, probably in about 2003, I started letting go of, of uh, penal substitution as a, as a, what do you call that, an atonement theory. But I, d- I didn't think it was an atonement theory. I thought it was the gospel. Right. And um, so I used to believe that that uh, the gospel is that God had to appease his own wrath through the violent punishment of his son in my place. 
And when that started unraveling for me and I let that go, then I got a whole new crop of accusers saying, you're a, you're a heretic, you're an enemy of the cross. And I'm like, hmm. this is interesting because now I'm in the Orthodox Church where um, mm-hmm. none of us, and that's 350 million of us, right. have ever believed in penal substitution. <laughs> right. So that's, when I shifted over to there, I found out orthodoxy is the new heresy, <laughs> which is incredibly ironic because... They're the ones who came up with the terms orthodoxy and heresy and defined them. And then, um, and then also uh, a third point, uh, I've been called a heretic uh, because some people believe that I'm a universalist. And, and while I don't believe universalists are heretics historically at all, um, I'm not even one anyway. I'm what's called a hopeful inclusivist. I believe um, that we can't make a dogma of any eschatology and that means there's freedom uh, within the Nicene Creed to have an opinion uh, without being called a heretic. But for those who believe, you just absolutely have to believe some people will go into eternal conscious torment. Or, Well, I mean, folks who believe that would think I'm a heretic because I'm way more hopeful than that. So that's the main reasons I'm called one, the, the listening to God stuff, the penal substitution stuff, and the hell stuff. Yeah, that's so that's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that, and um, I appreciate you coming on, um, Brad. This is Jamal here, and I, I and especially I got a couple of days after your surgery, so I really it's really it's really awesome to have you on the podcast. Um, a question I just have for you um, would be about your deconstruction process. Like, what? Mm-hmm. How would you describe? Because obviously, you used to think things like penal substitutionary atonement was the gospel, and obviously you're not there now. Can you describe a little bit about what your deconstruction process has been like? Yeah, um, that's a good question, uh, p- partly because it's an interesting analogy. Um, I know a lot of f- friends of mine, they, they actually talk like this, where it's like, well, when I went through my deconstruction, and um, I'm starting to wonder whether that's too violent, um, at least to describe me in, in this sense. Um, I didn't feel a big tearing down. I felt like I was waking up and I could let go of some things. Um, But one of the critiques of deconstruction language comes from Brian Zahn, and he would say, well, maybe it'd be better to call it like an art restoration project where you don't want to damage the beautiful artwork underneath, Mm. the beauty of the gospel and of living faith and so on. But we get all this grime on it. And what is the theological grime I've inherited? Um, what is some of the, uh, what, what would you say, even my personal grime? So I, I would say I did have kind of a violent deconstruction, but it wasn't around those theological issues. For me, it was more to do with my own self-will. And I had a pretty serious crash at one point when I realized I wasn't the uh, Messiah. <laughs> and, I, and so <clears throat> if, we're, if we're talking about my personal, personal deconstruction of coming out of that place of being a management addict who thought my pastoral duty was to manage other people's choices and decisions and spiritual journeys. And then finally, you just run into a wall there. Then that was, that was a big collapse. Um, but it, when it came to these theological issues, it felt more like growing or it felt like waking or maybe even uh, illumination. And an analogy I just ran into out on the east coast of Canada is if you go down like to a certain depth in the water, the only light that can get through um, makes everything you look at look green. 
So you're looking at this whole world under the water that's green. And I mean, that world is down there, but then if you, if you take a flash down there and use the whole light spectrum, you realize, oh my goodness, there's so many more colors down here. I just couldn't see them till I had more light. And that's what it felt like for me. Um, I felt like this sort of the mystic's journey of having purgation, like where you're being purged of stuff, but also illumination, mm -hmm. where the light is really coming on. And, uh, and for me, that meant uh, especially that really basic stuff, that God is love. And if there's a God of love, he looks like Jesus. And um, if there's a God of love who looks like Jesus, he's embraced everyone. He's reached out to everybody. He loved, you know. And, and suddenly uh, I realized, actually, this is what the ancient church taught. And so, so in that sense, it's not just tearing down something and rebuilding my own structure. Rather, I'm wiping away centuries of grime that I inherited to find out that there was this beautiful core there from the beginning. So that's kind of how it works in my mind. Um, yeah, so I, I like that you um, that you told that story in, in in that way because I think at least for me, um, and this is Matt here. Um, sometimes when we when we use the language of deconstruction, we tend to just stay in that deconstruction place. Um, maybe seven years ago or so, that's where I was at, where it was just like there is no God. This is all bull crap. Um, and then you you're just like alone without any furniture in your apartment and you're just like if the apartment even stands you know if the house is still even standing and I think when we get to there there's this um I'll call it danger because it wasn't a comfortable place for me where um you're left kind of wandering without anything and and there's this propensity to say well the whole thing was crap so now I'm here and I guess this is it um and we we tend to forget that uh as we quote so-called deconstruct, we can also um, see an illumination of things that uh, we we tend to miss when we're just in this like binary way of thinking where it's just deconstruction only. At least that was my um, experience. Yeah, and for me, uh, some of this also involved things like trauma. You know, so for example. Um, in, in 2008, we had a whole bunch of people die in our church. Wow. Like uh, the kind of people we had in our church were in, included high-risk folks. So we had a lot die of overdoses. We had a murder. We had an abduction. Wow. We, had, we had suicides and one after another. And I couldn't hold it together. And it was like terribly traumatizing. And so then the kind of th theological work you do at that point is in response to real life on the ground. Is God good? Right. And I... I couldn't control what happened, and I also couldn't really determine where I would come out in it. So when we call it when the when the bulldozer came over me, um, for whatever reason, I was able to hang on to one thing, and that was that God is good. And then I was able to build from there. Okay, God, and that God loves me. And I'm like, wow, even these are just totally faith statements right now. But there they are, and I had them still. And I don't know why I had them still. It felt like a gift. Um, but, but that maybe enabled me to say, if God is good and God is love, then what's this? what are these weird, ugly theologies doing here? Um, 
and I could see how very toxic they were to the most vulnerable people. So if our theology of, let's say, anything from the cross to the afterlife to whatever, if, it, if it's not going to work for the most wounded, marginalized people, then it probably doesn't work at all. And what I got to see was, you know, those most severe cases. And it's like, okay, what, what could possibly be true here that will get us through? So for me, there was this mix of theological kind of re-examination, but also pastoral and personal uh, crises and I think that's probably the best way to test our theology too is like does this work for a family whose kid is drowned in a hot tub you know like or do we have just nothing to say at that point right um, I think that's perfect that, that you say that um, and, and I, I don't remember who said it but if, if, if your theology can't be preached at, uh, at the gates of Auschwitz then um, it's probably not worth having I don't know if that was you Brad um, if you said that, but I've heard that before and I just thought it's absolutely spot on. Yeah, it's a real litmus test, isn't right. it? I mean, Simone Weil once said, uh, you know, you can't talk about any of this without, unless you remember that there were 50,000 slaves crucified, 50,000 wow. in, in, in Rome. So right. that would be hers, right? And then we have right. Auschwitz and so on. But we all have these litmus tests kind of furnaces almost. Uh, that your theology has to pass through, or it's just an abstraction, really. Isn't that true? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brad, I, I want to ask you um, this is a question that comes to mind. And, you know, especially when you look at the world, you look at the trajectory of humanity and the things that you see happening, uh, it can be easily, it, it, it can be easy to like just kind of you know, become pessimistic or lose hope. But I wanted to ask you, because you classify yourself as a, as a hopeful universalist like what makes you so hopeful that mankind will be redeemed like in in a to- in a total way in the end why are you hopeful about that um to me that really boils down to the incarnation and so uh, uh i've become very convinced of who jesus is and i believe i've met him and so having ex- had this, had experiences like that i look to the early church fathers and they would say look at what what the impact of Adam on this on this world was like whatever Adam is, even right, right, right. <laughs> um, and, um, right, right. The impact of Adam on this world is total, but Romans five says how much more so Jesus. Right. So the, the fall, whatever the fall did, the resurrection um, overcomes many times over, and then and then the idea is like. It, uh, that now Jesus Christ in his resurrection, which I believe in, that he holds the keys of death in Hades. And that means if he holds the keys, what will he do with them? Well, what it means is that death is no longer this ticking time bomb. In fact, death is not a thing. In fact, it's been overcome. And so if Jesus is God's revelation of perfect love and love gets the last word, I have some reason for hope. It's an ultimate hope <laughs> because it's, Man, penultimately, uh, as in day to day, there is every reason for us to despair. I just don't see a, a substantive response to that kind mm. of love. But what I do see is that maybe this love is more powerful and that, that this, this love does, in fact, get the last word. And that word will be mercy. Mm. And so mercy will triumph over judgment and light will triumph over darkness. And so I put my hope there or I just sink. And uh, I've done the sinking thing, right. and, and when I thought I had sunk to bottom, I still found God there. Mm. 
So it's sort of like the worst we could do, the darkest of our darkness. Uh, that's where the light showed up on Good Friday in the resurrection. So maybe, maybe that's going to be uh, a picture of, of human destiny. Yeah, Brad, this is Keith. I, uh, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you, uh, because it was your book, uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. I was reading that book. Uh, I used to take the train to work, so I would read on the train. And as I was reading the final chapter of that book on the train, uh, I was honestly trying not to blubber. <laughs> uh, just I was crying with joy. It was so beautiful. Um, the picture, and again, I, I, I encourage everyone to read the book, uh, but you you in that book, and it was really, I think, the very, very final chapter, uh, and this is what really turned me into a hopeful universalist, um, painted a picture for me uh, and gave me this hope, this idea that maybe maybe God is even better than I thought he was. Um, and it was such a beautiful hope. It was such a beautiful picture that, wow, you know, wouldn't it be incredible if, if when we're all standing there um, at the judgment or whatever that's going to look like, um, when, when, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, what if, he, what if he surprises everybody again? What if we all gasp when he does something even more amazing than the cross, even more amazing than the resurrection? Uh, and it really gave me a hope that that's possible, that, that maybe he, he isn't finished amazing us with how great he is. Yeah, it would be really awful if he sort of went, well, I tried the whole love thing last time and it didn't really work out, so <laughs> we're just going to shut her down now. You know, like that would be silly. Yeah. But um, Ephesians 3 actually says precisely what you're proposing, Keith. Um, in Ephesians 3, Paul says, look it, the love of God is higher, wider, deeper, and longer than you can grasp. Yes. And it's beyond understanding. And so I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will give you a glimpse of it because here's what you'll find out. Mm. If you get a glimpse of it, it's even better than that. Exactly. And, and it will be more than you can ask and more than you can imagine. So what I do with my theology is I just say, okay, here's one theology and here's another one. Which one has the wider, higher, longer, deeper love? You must go with it, according to Ephesians 3. Yeah. It will always be. And then if, if you can even th think better than my vision that I describe in the book, that, then you must, because he, he will be that for sure, because it will always exceed what we're hoping for. Yeah. And to me, I, I, I'm, I have a big imagination, and I think that's just really wonderful. Amen to that. Um, Brad, we got a couple yeah. minutes here left. Um, can you tell me uh, what new projects you might have um, that you're working on that you're super excited about and that you want to uh, tell people about and share with them? Uh, well, if they want to follow stuff, I'm online, of, of course, on Facebook and Twitter. But And I have a website, bradjersak.com. And um, uh, so the latest thing that had come out was my book, A More Christ-Like God. And that's still really doing well. And it's, it's turning into, it seems like, an important work. Uh, so to follow that up, I'm... I'm doing two things. One is I've done the first draft of a novel called Ooh. The Great Descent, but it like it's my first try, so this is going to probably take a couple of years of work with my editor Kevin right. Miller uh, before it's really readable, and and that'll that'll be exciting. Uh, but I'm also in the midst of then the beginnings of a follow-up book to a more Christ-like God called A More Christ-like Way. Mm. And that's going to be like, okay, if we have this broader, be more beautiful theology, now what does it look for our lives? 
you know, it, it, what, what would be the way, what does following this kind of Jesus look like? And maybe, maybe it's uh, much better than just deconstruction, right. right? Or it moves beyond that to the next step. What, if we reconstruct our very lives based in a new, this new revelation of, as, of God as perfect love, then, um, then what are the implications? And so I'm just at the beginnings of that and very excited about it. That sounds uh, incredible. And it actually sounds like what we've been uh, talking about in our last couple episodes. Um, you know, it, what does it mean to be Christian? Is it, is it belief systems first or is it uh, following this way um, that Jesus models for us? Um, I, that, sounds, that sounds like gold. And I must say, uh, a more Christ-like God, I've, it has helped me so much in, in the book that I've got coming out. And um, especially your stuff on wrath is just, it's, uh, it's gold, man. Well, thanks. That's kind. So, um, yeah, uh, Brad, I just want to personally thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, totally loved talking with you. And I, I don't think, I think this is actually the first time we've had the chance to talk in person, uh, quote unquote, in person. So um, I was really happy and excited to, uh, to be able to chat with you today. My pleasure. And I just wanted to put a shout out there for my new granddaughter. I just became a grandpa. And I have a little girl over in uh, Korea right now named Ah Hyun. That's my uh, first grandchild. Wow, congrats. congrats. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Brad. My Thank pleasure. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Peace and love. Wow. That was a great interview. So cool to have uh, Brad Jerzak join us on the podcast. Oh, that's big time. Yeah, that's something. That's something. Big time. <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> how do we move on from that? Um I guess we got to get right into our uh, our topic, the meat of the um, the conversation here. Uh, do we worship Jesus or the Bible? And uh, another question, I guess, that piggybacks off that: Do some people actually worship the Bible? Uh, guys, you want to jump in? Have you have you have you experienced uh, people who who seem to worship the Bible? Can I just say, I'm like, this is a question. Is is this serious? Like, are we seriously going to be discussing? Do we worship a book or do we worship Jesus? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just being honest. We had to have an episode about cussing, so we we <laughs> I guess we'll have an episode about that. That's amazing. Yeah, and you know what? I I agree, man. I I agree that it's crazy that you would even have to have a, a conversation about worshiping a book and if that's something that Christians should do. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I I've I've been blown away um, on my blog and on Facebook having these crazy, insane conversations that seriously, like I'm taking crazy pills, talking <laughs> to Christians who will flat out say, yes, they worship the Bible, that the, the worshiping the Bible is the same as worshiping God or Jesus because it contains the words, the word of God, and the, you know, it is the word of God. Uh, they'll even misquote, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, as if what that means is that the word became a book. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just crazy. And, and then the more you try to explain to them how crazy that is and that that is not at all what, um, what we're supposed to do, they'll just double down and say, oh, no, this is exactly what we should do. And mm-hmm. I've had people flat out tell me that knowing doctrine is the same as knowing Jesus. Uh, having right doctrine is the same as knowing Jesus. Um, it's just really crazy. So yeah, if, I, I just thought we needed to have a whole podcast just to explain this and talk about this crazy phenomenon uh, that there are Christians very, very confused um, about the Bible. They love the Bible so much, they literally worship the Bible. Wow. 
Jamal, have you had have you encountered have you encountered that? I, have, I know I have. I actually have. I have quite a bit. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years, and um, they will use the term "word of God," but I know what they mean. Like I get it. Like I, I, I mean, I come from that world, so I do understand that in conversation, people they just throw out the word of God, but they really mean the book. They're really referring to the Bible. Yeah. But I find it very interesting yeah. that they use that terminology. It's just funny because I remember um, before I actually had like my initial conversion experience to Christ. It was I was like teenager. I was about eighteen when that happened. But just before that, like I remember being around like Christians a lot, and they would talk about the Word of God. And I remember in my mind thinking, "Is this like a word? Is there like a secret word that they're not telling?" Like they kept saying the Word yeah. of God. I'm like, well, what's the word? Like, just tell me what the secret <laughs> word is. Like, God only has one word, and I'm like, okay, so. What is that word? I just would like to know. And that was, I just thought, I just remember thinking about that going, that's such an odd way to refer to some secret word. Why don't you just tell everybody what the word is? But I think the bird, bird, yeah. bird, the bird is the word, right? I was going to, I was going to say, yeah, the bird is the word, isn't it? That's what I thought. That's, what, that's what I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I know grow, growing up with me, I mean, it's interesting that I mean, I came from a pretty fundamentalist background and i wouldn't say totally fundamentalist like maybe fundy light like um but but definitely literalism in the bible and definitely like this is the inerrant word of god um like you said jamal it's it's the word um but it was what's interesting is that when i would just try to get into it and i would try to love it i really would i would try to love the scriptures i just found it so perplexing and it didn't like the way i was reading it didn't line up with my uh direct experiences and what I was actually experiencing in the universe. And I just couldn't fall in love with it. But honestly, um, as I, as I've become to read it more allegorically, um, to not take it so literally, to not think that it's inerrant, to not think it's the word of God. Actually, ah, you always throw me off with that shit. Ah, there, there it is. (laughs) Um, I actually, I love the Bible, I love the scriptures, and I love the, um, the non-canonical stuff. I love uh, the Apocrypha, and I love um, yeah. all the Jewish scriptures. And, and How about the Christian Gnostic scriptures. writings? How about the Gnostic writings? I enjoy those too. I think they're all great literature. Um, so what if it's not in my Bible? I, I think it's fantastic. Is it, is it all true all the time, like every jot and tittle? Well, no, I don't think the Gospels are every every jot and tittle is completely accurate, right? Heresy, I mean, heresy. there's a heresy button for that, right? Um, uh, but if you go to the synoptics and compare them and compare with John's Gospel, like, so what if there's details that are a little bit different? Like, that, I think that's that's the beauty in the story. And actually, um, yeah. when we when we remove ourselves from thinking it's the Word of God, I actually, my personal experience is like I love them ever more. Gnostic Gospels yeah. included, uh, pseudo-epigraphal writings, all, the, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the—obviously um, what we get screwed up by, and, and I was—you know, there was a time in my life when I was certainly—I uh, was raised in that whole camp of believing that the Bible was the Word of God, and it was inerrant, and it was, you know, holy. I mean, it says holy right there on the cover, so it's right. got to be a holy book. <laughs> right. uh, and, and when you say something is holy, what you're saying is it can't be questioned, it can't be doubted, it can't be— you know, you can't uh, shine a negative light on it because it's holy. Um, and of course, all that, you know, as the more you really study the scriptures, and, and as we've done, you know, we've, the more we've looked into stuff and gone into reading some criticism and things like that from different different directions, you suddenly start to slowly 
it dawns on you that, uh, well, there are some mistakes in there, and um, some some of these guys had pretty different ideas from one another about who God was and what God wanted and what he commanded and what he didn't, and what he liked and what he didn't like, and what he was like, even what God was like uh, or wasn't like. You know, like, did he visit the sins of the fathers on the children, or uh, was that something that he never intended, or did he command sacrifices, or did he never, it never entered his mind to command sacrifices, or... Or, you know, I mean, you, see, you start noticing these things all through the Scripture, and you realize, well, that those things—here's here, the thing that I realize is that when people do worship the Bible—I do have a point here. When people do worship the Bible, um, it's like when you—any question you, you raise, any doubt you, you point out, any mistake or flaw, uh, it, shatter, it shakes them and shatters them because their faith is in the book, Rather than in God, they don't have a faith in Jesus. They have a or a person, right, uh, or a being. They have a faith in a book, and that's the wrong place to put your faith. And the, again, the more you study it, the more you find out. Yeah, that is the wrong place to put your faith because it's a collection of different ideas and thoughts and opinions. Really, some of them right, I think. Some of them not so right. Uh, but but the the Bible doesn't point you to itself. The Bible never says to know the Bible. Uh, the Bible points you to Jesus, and I think we should, in that respect, yes, follow the Bible. Well, but I mean, what is, uh, can I ask, what is the, do you guys find danger in, um, is there danger when we put our faith in the book? Because, at least for me, it seems that once one thread gets pulled on that, or one, or use the analogy, the um, the house of cards, it's kind of like... It's like the cornerstone. Jesus is supposed to be the cornerstone that the builders rejected, but like we cornerstone it with, or we in the Protestant tradition at least, um, cornerstone it with the book, uh, which really means our interpretation of the book. But we cornerstone it with the of book, course. and what, that ha- what happens is when we pull that out, don't we run the risk of having the whole thing come tumbling down? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, it happens all the time. Um, you know, it just... Because it's actually ridiculous. If I mean, I'm not. That's not to demean people who believe it. But it's, if you really just look at it a little bit closer, and you go, "Well, th- this really doesn't hold up," just with rational thought, and you know, it's. I know that there's mi- mystery goes beyond rational thought, but it doesn't like like rational th- like it 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 goes beyond it, but it doesn't completely negate it. So, like, if you just stop and think about. This this idea that there's a magic book and you're attaching your all your faith, you're externalizing. Basically, you're 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 setting people up for failure because it's like a GPS system. Like GPS kind of points you where to go. Well, by default, you're pointing people outside of themselves to find truth, which is actually the very problem. It actually goes against the new covenant, the New Testament, the understanding of where truth is actually going to be found. Which is yeah. internal. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say finish, finish that thought because, like the the new, what is the promise that Jesus says and uh, what the new covenant's all about? And he re, he's just repeating what's said in Jeremiah mm-hmm. that this new covenant is that God would, you know, uh, and as it says, you know, and, and Joel poured His Spirit on all flesh, and then the new covenant says that God would, uh, no one would inquire of God because they would all know Him, mm-hmm. and that He would, you know, as Jesus says, you know, He and the Father make their home in in us, and and so you're right, it isn't some. We, we, our faith is not in, or knowing God isn't some other thing over there. Our hope isn't isn't built on this uh, other this book or this belief system or a set of doctrines or you know these other kind of constructs. Mm-hmm. That it's really built on knowing God 
intimately. And that's exactly what Jesus says, right? Jesus says uh, this is eternal life, that they would know God and his Son, uh, whom he has sent. Not that they would know a Bible, right? And he also says to the Pharisees, that's one of the rebukes he gives to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you'll find life, but you refuse to come to me and have life. That life isn't in the book. That life is in Christ. And, and can I, yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah so, just can I carry this, uh, just this thought even a little bit step further is like when, when Jesus, this is anything new. So when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews had already tried to do this. They tried to make the book, their, their book, their, you know, their scriptures, the S, the source of, of truth. And, um, and they, mm-hmm. and then of course were by, by default looking externally at something else. And so when Jesus comes to them, he says, Hey, this kingdom you're looking for, all of this, you know, you're looking for this new world, the Messiah to come in and usher in this new kingdom. It's actually within you. And he said that even before he did anything. Like he, that means they already possessed it internally. um, And they just were looking in the wrong direction for where to find this new world. Uh, Can I play devil's advocate though? Um, Please do. Okay. (laughs) Can I ask? Without the Bible, how are we going to know any of this stuff? How are we going to know anything about Jesus? Or how are we going to know anything about um, the true God as revealed by Jesus? Yeah. Because, well, I mean, I've heard that question, too. I mean, well, if, well, if you're going to throw out the book, which I, that's a straw man, but if you're going to throw out the book, how are you going to know anything about Jesus? Right. And, you know, I think actually our next podcast, we're going to go more, much more deeper into that. Can we know, is it possible to know Jesus apart from the Bible? So I don't want to scoop that too much, but I would just say... Um, that if you're gonna, if you're really going to take the Bible seriously, then and you look at what the Bible says about the answer to the question you just asked, the the Bible says the answer is yes, you can know God, you can know Christ apart from the book, uh, and that's what the Bible over and over again tells us is that we can know Him by seeking Him, we can know Him by spending time with Him, we can know Him by listening to the still small voice. Over and over again, the Bible redirects us directly to him, not to a mediator, not to a book, not to a prophet, not to a priest, not to a system, not to a church. It, it, the Bible over and over again points us directly. We have full access. We are sheep who are, have full access to the Good Shepherd, and we can hear his voice. Uh, so uh, I guess I already, I already answered that question then. But in my opinion, I, I feel like, yes, we can totally know God apart from Scripture. Now, does that mean we don't need it at all? We just toss it out? No. I think it is valuable. It is good to have, but it's also good to have it with your eyes open to recognize that not all of it, uh, that you may, you know, even if you want to call the Bible the Word of God, I, I don't agree with that, but understand that it's not the words of God. Like, uh, <laughs> that that's a phrase we use, but although, you know, really more and more when you look at what, when the phrase Word of God is used, it really applies more to to Jesus, that Jesus is the Word of God, uh, and uh, or and or the Word of God might refer to the gospel. Uh, quite often, I think in the New Testament, it'll say the Word of God. What it means is the gospel message. Um, but anyway, well, and and two points. Um, isn't that the point that that you're saying, Keith? Is the point of um, you know when when they're on the mountain and Peter he, they want to build a shrine or um, yep. like a tabernacle to uh, to Moses and Elijah. And, and it's not, no, 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 it's Jesus. And then also yep. the point on the Emmaus road where Jesus meets the disciples and he interprets for them everything in the scriptures. And yep. he, he, and then when they take the, uh, the Eucharistic meal that, or, or the meal that when they get to the house and they eat, then they, Jesus disappears. Right. 
And it's yep. like they, it's revealed that, okay, this is um, in like theological lingo, we'd say that's our hermeneutical lens, right? All the, all yep. the scriptures, whether, whether we put it in our canon or not, that's our lens. And, and that's what the scriptures actually point to. So that's, yeah, I would agree with you, Keith, that um, sure, we, we do need the scriptures to, to know this story. But, yep. but that story, what the story is saying is that the story's not pointing to, you know, the words itself in the pages, the, pa- the words on yep. the pages point to something else. And yes. that would be, you know, the true word of God, which is Christ Jesus, right? Yeah, and you know, as you were talking, I, I wanted to add something to what you said and, and get ready with the heresy button because this might, might, uh, <laughs> might trigger the alarm. But, uh, but see, I love what you said there, right? So you said, yeah, so what we do is we read the scriptures through the lens of Christ, and I totally agree with that. That's completely where I come from. So that first we know Christ, and then once we know Christ, then we go back and read the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and we can, we can use discernment to say, does that sound like something Jesus would say? But you know what? You can use that same exact lens uh, of reading things through the lens of Christ when you're reading the Quran or you're reading Buddha or you're reading any other anything else, whether you're watching a right. movie or listening to a song. Like in other words, everything should be through the lens of Christ, and you'll find truth. You'll find what's true, uh, what resonates with Christ uh, if you read anything or listen to anything or process anything through the lens of Christ. Right, and and I would um, I agree with you, Keith, that you can you can watch even. Uh, Disney movies. That's um, my, I have a seven-year-old. I, <laughs> <laughs> I I have a I have a seven-year-old daughter, and I did these series um, for the Raven Foundation on um, interpreting uh, Disney princess movies through the lens <laughs> of a non-sacrificial gospel, and and wow. the gospels the gospels all there. I mean, in all these wow. stories, there are infusions of the gospel that. I think we said this on another podcast a couple episodes ago that you can't keep the gospel down. It's like a virus. It just it's yep. spreading, and it, and it can spread without without the the, the so called correct language. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I would I would be willing to bet the folks at Disney aren't all Christians for sure. Probably not. Um, no. And I don't think they're trying to tell the gospel story. At least from what I've I've never heard anything to that effect. But right. when you watch like Beauty and the Beast or Moana or any of these Disney movies, it's amazing. I'm watching these things like, like holy shit! Like <laughs> this is yeah. uh, <laughs> this is good stuff. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah, and you know, even uh, like some of the movies that just uh, came out this past summer. Like, I mean, I man, I'm telling you, when I watched Wonder Woman, I did not expect in that film for it to be a film about someone using the power of love to literally fight war. Uh, it was incredible, and, like, and she was such in that film. Wonder Woman it was such a Christ-like figure. Like she had love and compassion for every single person she passed. You know, there's a scene where one of the where the guy stops her and says, you know, she she's they're walking through this battlefield and there's like someone injured and crying, and she stops and turns to them and went, oh, we got to help this person. And he says to her, look, if we if we try to stop and help every single person, we, we can't. We'll never get where we're going. We have to do this, and she refuses. Right? She's she cannot walk past someone suffering and without serving them or helping them. And um, it's an amazing, that movie was an amazing picture of Christ. And I've seen a lot of movies lately that you can totally see a, a Christ picture or message or a gospel message in these films. And like you said, I don't, I really doubt that it's very intentional. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it always is. Um, what I, what I also, I had, I had some, you know, some thoughts about that movie. We won't add, this isn't a movie review podcast, but uh <laughs> Um, I did like how it seemed that that the writer um, 
pretty much pinned down that the uh, the structuring principle of our world is war, which Wonder yes. Woman was like so um, kind of taken back to. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that actually can transition us pretty well into talking about what uh, that what we trans what we generally translate in English to the Word of God, capital W, comes from this term logos or logos. And it's interesting yep. that before Jesus, in Greek philosophy, there's this philosopher. Uh, this is pre-Socrates, uh, Heraclitus, um, wrote that that war is the father and the king, um, the father and the king of all, and what structures the universe, what structures human culture, and everything that we're a part of is violence. And so wow. it's yeah, it's like it's like. Wonder Woman picks up on that, and then thousands and thousands of years, Greek philosophy picks up on that. Um, so I think what my point was is that um, that when we talk about what the Word of God is, that there's a context already when the writer of the fourth gospel writes in the very, very start, John 1.1, 1, 1, um, yeah. that, that Christ is the Word, Logos or Logos of God. Um, there's already a context there. And that context is violence. So my question, I guess, would be, did maybe that writer have that in mind? Um, Mm -hmm. Is is he trying to say something there um, that that we're missing when we just, in English, translate it to word? Yeah, I think, you know, I I do. I think think we're, we're missing a lot of it because of this. Um, and, and, you know, I may, I'm, I'm not so convinced that, like, I, I think you, when you read the Bible, the word, they didn't, I mean, we're talking about an ancient book. They're stumbling on a reality, though, a very transcendent reality. I don't think they always know how to put words for. So sometimes they're using these right. specific words and they're trying to, like, communicate something, but it's very, it goes way beyond even what they understood at that time. Um, but the Greeks did have a concept of the Word of God, like you were saying, Matt, and it's, um, and I, I think we we really need to like factor that in when we read because this is the, this is their context in many ways. But I want to read. I really feel like um, the nature of the word of God. Now, obviously, Paul in his revelation gets into some of this. He talks about obviously an indwelling, this indwelling Christ, which can be you know when we again Christ is not Jesus' last name by the way. So when what? when, when what? we refer to Christ, we're not talking about Jesus all the time. We're talking. I mean, at least Joseph and at Mary least, Christ. At yeah. least in my terminology, when I say the word Christ, I could be referring to many different kinds of things or realities. It's it's not. It's actually more of a, a, pick, a term for a reality. And I think this is where Paul is going with his revelation. Is yes, obviously Jesus is the revelation of the Christ, but this goes way beyond the historical man Jesus that lived two thousand years ago, who's no longer with us on this earth. So like when we. We're talking about this cosmic Christ reality, and when we start to get into like you know quantum mechanics, quantum science, this is where science is beginning to bear this out. Because Paul talks about even in his writings that you know all things that exist have come forth, you know, from the Word, and you know, it, you know, and it's it, it's through the Word. John talks about this in his gospel, but like it's through the this Word that everything that exists you know, has come into being. And, you know, Paul goes on to talk about like everything exists by him and through him and for him using this personal terminology, which obviously I think you can do because we're talking about the divine nature, but it goes way beyond the person of Jesus. We're talking about the word of God who, you know, preceded the person of Jesus um, birth on the earth. And like, obviously includes 
everything. So I want to read this excerpt. From, it's actually just a little excerpt from this book and it's, uh, that I'm reading. And it's quoting from, uh, it's just quoting from uh, a book called The Fabric of Cosmos, Space, Time, and the Texture of Reality. And, it, and, and this, the author writes, he, explained that, he explains that just as a viol- violin string can vibrate in different patterns, each of which produces a distinct musical tone, the filaments of superstring theory can also vibrate in different patterns. Tiny string vibrating in one pattern would have the mass and the electric charge of an electron. And according to the theory, such a vibrating string would be what we have traditionally called an electron. A tiny string vibrating in a different pattern would have the requisite properties to identify it as a quark, a neutron, or any other kind of particle. Each arises from a different vibrational pattern executed by the same underlying entity. At the ultra-microscopic level, the universe, this is what's beautiful, the universe would be akin to a string symphony vibrating matter into existence. So when you think about like the divine, you think about God and literally the sound, this in it, literally all of creation at its very, you know, at the fabric of its creation, you know, at the, at this level, at this microscopic level is really just sound that's oscillating at different frequencies. And that's why it takes on different properties. But that's to me, what I think about when I think the word of God that upholds everything and sustains everything in existence, we're talking about this reality that comes forth from God is actually a sound. So we are all like literally being spoken into existence. So this is beautiful stuff. But again, to think that we're talking. But it's like it's like to think that, that to, to reduce that to a freaking book or as Matt would say, a fucking book. It's like it's like. It's it's just like how 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 that's devastating to like reduce this understanding to yeah. a book, right? I just yes, think it's so it sorry, Keith. Uh, I got one Go quick thing. I just think it's so cool that the writers of the freaking book <laughs> um, <laughs> would talk about the structuring principle of reality being the Christ, and we can talk about this cosmic Christ, and then when we get into the scientific field, that we can we can have a theology that, that pretty much is, says, yeah, that's orthodox. And it, it po- the quantum theory seems to me to point to that, that at the, at the core of it, um, we're all just these vibrations of energy. Um, I, 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 I got to study up on my quantum theology and quantum physics, but it's just, from what I understand, it's like, it's beautiful the way that, that the two can be a, a holistic view. You can hold this this mystical cosmic Christ theology um, that folks like Mike Morell, we, we're going to have him on the podcast coming up, um, Richard yeah. Rohr and folks the way they talk. And you, then you can listen to quantum theorists and you're like, it sounds like they're saying the same thing, but through their own lens and their own worldview. Sure. Yeah. And that, this is what drives me insane is that I, I you know, when you, we do start to focus our, our imagination as we're doing right now, we're focusing our thoughts and our imagination on Christ. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Word of God? Who is the Logos, right? And we start, you know, our minds start exploding as we're trying to, like, we're doing, I think, exactly what Paul is doing uh, in Philippians and in Ephesians, where he's grasping for the words to try to express something beyond expression about how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ that transcends knowledge. And he's praying that we would have the power just to grasp how great it is and how how incredible it is and how amazing it is. But yet it goes even beyond 
our, the human mind's ability to grasp it, but yet he still prays that somehow we could begin to understand it, have this mind of Christ. And, and the more you think about that and you, and you meditate on that and you're like, your mind is getting blown, the more you uh, meditate on how amazing Christ is, that's why it's even more insane to me to take these scriptures that are about him and about this unimaginable, incredible, you know, being, and then say, no, it's a book. It's this book that I bought at the bookstore down the street, and I got it, and I studied it, and I memorized it, and I read it, and I argue it, and like, and that's it. Like, for you to replace Christ with a book is, uh, I think that's heresy. I think that's really part of me the most, the saddest thing I've ever heard, that you would be willing to settle for a book, you know? And um, like we were saying earlier, you know, you were saying, Jamal, I'm sorry, you were saying, it was Matt, you were saying, you know, how do we know any of these things? How would we know Christ apart from a book? And uh, and in my conversations with people who have brought that up to me, I've, I've always used this analogy. I've said, you know, here's the deal. When I was in college, my my good friend Carlos, he introduced me to Wendy, right? And uh, because of him, I know her, and I fell in love with her, and uh, we got married, and we've been married for 28 years. And um, and so so you would say, well, Keith, wow, you wouldn't even know Wendy if it wasn't for Carlos. Yeah, but I didn't fall in love with Carlos. I'm I'm very grateful to Carlos. He's great, but I don't call him. Uh, I actually don't even have his number anymore. We haven't talked to him in years. But, you know, I don't spend all my time with Carlos. Uh, and that's not a horrible tragedy. It's, 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 the, it's the proper response, right? And so the Bible, as great as it is, it's a wonderful thing, you know, in many respects. There's a, there's a lot of great stuff in the Bible. And again, without the Bible, I'm going to quote Brian Zahn, you know, that the only thing the Bible does inerrantly and infallibly is point us to Christ. But that's what it's doing. All the scriptures are pointing us to Christ. And, and what a tragedy to read in the book about this amazing Christ and then close that book and say, what a great book. That, are you kidding me? Instead of, instead of reading, about this, reading in the book about this amazing Christ and closing the book and saying, man, Jesus is awesome and I want to know him more. Like, that should be our response. That's what, that's what the book, if, you're, if your relationship with the book is proper, that's what yeah. it should be. Right? Don't spend all your time with Carlos. Uh, fall in love with, with your bride and, and focus on the one you love. Uh, and that, for us, should be Christ. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, yeah, totally, totally. It, but I, I kind of want, you know, I've had this, and this is probably going to get, this is probably, uh, you know, to really get into this is a different topic, but I, I kind of want to say this because I think it is appropriate for our conversation here. I I, I have not experienced, personally experienced, or even with people I know, um, I think that we can discover the Word of God, the Christ consciousness, and even, even understanding the gospel and the person of Jesus in spite of the Bible, but but I don't think the Bible is actually really helpful for anybody. And, I, and the reason I say that is not because I uh, the reason because I I think that we need to make a distinction between scriptures, the writings, and the Bible because one of those is real, one of them isn't. I actually don't think the Bible is. It's like national boundaries. It's not actually real. So th- th- there's writings, and we have all we have writings from all kinds of people, from all kinds of and, and writings that are inspired. They they impact people. They they tend to have a life of its own. They continue on. Um, and this isn't just writings from the Bible, but the the 
that's contained in the Bible, but the Bible itself is an invented book in the fourth century that literally it was not ever intended, in my opinion, like to be hand selected by a select group of men. And then now we have this thing, we run around and we say, oh yeah, this thing points us to Jesus. I actually don't think it does. Actually, I actually think all the evidence shows us that it points us away from Jesus. It points us away from the Christ and but because of the way the divine works, you know, God comes into our world and then he, in spite of all that, still continues to reveal himself. But if you look at the person of Jesus, in his day, his preferred method of explaining and talking about ultimate reality, talking about his father and talking about the nature of God and the way, the kingdom of God, it wasn't through the scriptures. He actually only used the scriptures to argue with the Pharisees who they, they like demanded it. And then he, so he used their language to like argue with them. But really yeah. when he was trying to explain higher reality, the nature of the kingdom in the way he, he just pointed back to like stories. He pointed back to yep. creation and trees and all kinds of things. So I, I just don't think it's actually been helpful. Um, again, the writings would have continued. I think we will always have writings, inspired writings, but the fact that, that somebody had to create this book that's why we have to unpack it now. That's why we have to actually tell people this is not the word of God. The word of God is something transcendent because this thing was never intended to be created in the first place, in my opinion. <laughs> right. And Well, that's, and an upcoming, that's an upcoming topic. I think we're going to get into the Bible. What is the Bible and the canon of scripture in an upcoming episode very soon? Yeah. And I look forward to that. That'll be fun. Um, I want to go back to something, Keith, that you said that um, when we have a certain view of the Bible, we're actually being heretical. And... It does seem that when certain, and I'm not going to say this with the broadest of brushes, but certain groups with certain views of the Bible actually cause division in the body and actually bring death towards people. So if you go on the extreme view of, of those who take the Bible um, as an inerrant word of God, is like you have the Westboro Baptist Church on one extreme um, view, but they can't really have that view without their view of the Bible. Um, so right. their zeal for God comes from this, um, this view of the Bible where, um, Jamal, you had said something about the, the scriptures don't always point to Jesus and I would kind of land. And I think Keith, you said they do. And I don't know if you meant that, but I, I would kind of fall in between that as Rene Girard said, the, the scriptures are a text in travail. Like it seems like sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But when we turn this whole mishmash of the scriptures or the Bible and we say it's all, the inerrant word of God, then we actually bring death. To, we can have, we can have, the, there is a danger of bringing death to people's life. Um, and there is the danger yep. of causing division in the body and, and in people and just, just bringing people down because there are so many scriptures that talk about yep. a violent God or God mandated genocide or things like that. And if we try to, I just, it's not possible to reconcile that with um, the nonviolent logos of God, right. which is Christ Jesus. There is no way, unless you want to, unless you're like a, a Olympic level mental gymnast, yeah. um, <laughs> you can't do it. You can try, but that's, I mean, I think you're in your trying, it's just futile. And that's why so many people walk away from the faith. Because when we start to actually think about it, you can't really reconcile um, the logos of God with all the things that have been said about God um, that, that yeah. just don't line up. Yeah. And I think, I think when you, when you look at 
people or groups in the world that do unnatural things like unnatural violence. I mean, you look at Islamic militants, you know, you look at Christian fundamentalists like the West Westboro Baptist Church or even even the way people treat one another in the in the way of like uh, trying to preserve some sort of, you know, some sort of et, uh, idea of purity which is unnatural. The the, yep. the reason people do that is because they, they have to go back to a text because it's not actually natural. And people wouldn't just normally act like this. So people go back to a text right, and they yes. go, look what the text says. I don't want it. You know, I, 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 how many times I heard guys, not to bash on Francis Chan, but I have heard so many times guys like him and others in evangelical Christian Christendom that say, hey, I don't like this either, guys, but I got to be true to the word of God. And it's like, are you serious? So you don't like this and you wouldn't even, this isn't natural to your sense of love and compassion and natural, just humanity, but yet you will excuse your inhumanity yeah. because of a text. And this is, this is the problem that it causes. Yep. Yeah. Do you know, Derek Flood in Disarming Scripture, which if you have not read Disarming Scripture, excellent book, totally. I recommend everyone listening to this podcast. If you haven't read it, read that book. But Derek Flood uh, talks about that, Jamal. And uh, he talks about the fact that exactly what you're saying, he puts his finger on it. He says, you know, how he even has some great quotes um, from people, even going way back to like slavery and things like that, where people would say, you know, I wish uh, that slavery wasn't something that God allowed, but there it is. It's in the Bible. So we have to, you know, we've got to allow people to own slaves because God God wasn't against it. He didn't condemn it. Or, or you know, there are lots of things like that where uh, they, they use the Bible to justify, um, you know, genocide against Native mm-hmm. Americans. Uh, and right. said, well, you know, we have to do this. This is something God's given us the right. Uh, but what Derek Flood says is that, obviously, that's wrong, that if there's something, if you yourself, in your own spirit, in your own heart, can say, that's evil, that's that's destructive, that's horrible, um, trust me, you're not more, uh, are you more ethical than God? Uh, do, are you like, are you better in some ways than God? I mean, that's that's the thing about every time God says in the Old Testament, "My ways are higher than your ways." What if you go and look at when He says that in context? What He's saying is, "I'm compassionate. I'm full of mercy." Right. In other words, His way is full of love and compassion and mercy. Our way is the way of violence and and not showing mercy and genocide and war and torture and slavery. Uh, and so, yeah, Derek Derek Flood in the book talks about like. That that should be your guide. Like, let Christ be your guide. If you look at something and say, that's wrong, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, right? Like, I would rather have a more Christ-like world than a more biblical world, because in a more biblical world, you have room for things like genocide and torture and slavery and, you know, uh, subjugating women and patriarchy and telling homosexual people they should be, you know, killed and stoned to death and things like that. I don't want a biblical world, because a right. biblical world allows that. I want a more Christ-like one. Heresy. Heresy, right? I, I, hey, it looks like we're about uh, wrapping up, but I think that leads us uh, perfectly into our next podcast topic, with which we're going to ask the question, can we know God without the Bible then? Um, or how can we know God yep. without the Bible? And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into that. It's going to be fun. Can't wait. Yeah. Hey, subscribe. Heretic Hotline. Hotline. Yes. Call the Heretic Hotline. Heretic Hotline, baby. Oh, yeah, what is the number? Do we even have that? (laughs) (laughs) What's the number? What's the number? Free heresy. (laughs) 2403 heresy, is that right? Something, something heresy. Does anybody out there have have the number? Please. (laughs) We're floundering.